All right, we're going to go ahead and jump in. We are in week four of our series entitled Relationships, The Struggle is Real. And obviously, we know that relationships in life can and will be a struggle from time to time. However, I don't want to paint the wrong picture or the wrong idea that because relationships are difficult, that they should be avoided. What makes life rich and fruitful are going to be the relationships and the people that we surround ourselves with in life. In fact, if it wasn't for the relationships that we have in life, life would be even more of a struggle. It is not good for us to be alone. And so while from time to time, being in proximity to other people is going to create stress or anxiety or tension, the reward is absolutely worth it because God designed us to be in community with other believers. As I was thinking about this, some of the richest relationships I have ever had in my life were found within the local church, the body of Christ. The closest people who have enriched me and benefited me to be where I am today were people who were in the church, who were Christians, who took time to invest in my life. And when I say fruitful relationship, I'm not talking about some sort of Hallmark movie. I'm talking about men and women who took time to invest in my life, to shape me into who I am today. There were men in the church who taught me how to be a man. How many of you guys had older men in the church that helped you learn how to be a man, who, who by their example poured into your life? There was a brotherhood of men who have shaped and, and sharpened me over the years. I've learned how to follow God from these men in the church. I've learned how to be a better father, a better husband from men in the church. I've learned how to manage my money and be driven and how to pursue the things of God because there were men in the church who took time to bring me alongside of them. But it wasn't just men in the church that helped shape me. There were godly women who helped shape my life as well because when I was a young man, I was able to look at their character and their integrity and they showed me what a godly woman looked like so I knew what to look for in my future spouse. By their character and their demeanor, they taught me the character and the nature of God. There were elder saints who inspired me to live for Christ and live life to the fullest and because of their example, never to give up on God and to always trust him through the hard times because he will always lead you to the other side of a place of victory. There were young people in the church, and as I get older, I appreciate our young people so much because they help keep me vibrant and young at heart because they challenge me and they pick on me a lot, and so I cry a little bit, but, but they still keep me young, and their, their zeal for life is inspiring. God saves us and sets us free. That's the greatest gift he can ever give you. The second greatest gift he's ever going to give you is placing his spirit inside of you, but a close third is that he plants you in a church, and a church becomes your family. The church was never intended to be an institution. The church was meant to be a family, and I'm thankful for that. Where would I have been without the local church? I'm scared to know the answer to that. So I value the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the church because it has brought great value to my life, and I'm sure that you could say the same thing. I heard a podcast a while back. I was listening to a, a gentleman who was a pastor. He was very well known in the ministry world. This man had a high level of ministry success. He was in a place that was very difficult to pastor, very difficult to grow a church. And yet because of his, his wisdom, his insight, his zeal, his passion, his work ethic, he was able to grow the church from very few to several thousand different people. Uh, he was well-respected across the country. He was invited to speak at conferences. He was invited to coach other pastors. He had hit the epitome of pastoral success. And then he cheated on his wife. He had an affair. 
His wife was a great godly woman. He was in shame. Of course, he was removed from his church. He was embarrassed, but he was also repentant. And his wife wanted to save the marriage, and so they took time to heal. And in the process of trying to heal their marriage, they realized that while they were in the church, they did not have a faith community around them. They were in the church, they were serving in the church, they were engaged in work of the church, but they were not engaged in relationships within the church. Their kids had grown up, their kids had their own family, and now this husband and wife were alone, and because they were alone, surrounded by a sea of people, it put them in a vulnerable place where he ultimately had an affair on his wife. And so they realized that one of the things that they needed to do to strengthen their marriage And thank God that God can heal marriages, amen? One of the things that they decided they needed to do was that they needed a faith community. And so they went through their their phone book, if you will. They went through their their phone, and they figured out who in their life they wanted to speak into their life. And they came up with five couples. And at this point, they were in their mid-50s, and they said, these are the five people that we're going to die with. We have 30, 40 years left, God willing, and we're going to live these next 30, 40 years with these people surrounding us, challenging us, and inspiring us. And you know what that story meant to me? He said afterwards that their marriage had never been better. Life had never been better. Why? Because they were surrounded by godly people who were helping shape and form them into the image of Christ by their example. And here's what that tells me, is that we can sit in church and not be plugged in. We can sit in church and we can be serving in church, but still not engaged with the relationships that Christ has called us to allow, challenge us and to shape us. This man was a pastor, successful, quote-unquote, pastor, and yet he was still all alone. And what that should show all of us is that we need to be diligent in looking for brothers and sisters in Christ to speak into our life. And what it really tells us is this, is that no one is responsible for making sure that we're plugged into the body of Christ except for us. We have to take ownership of our spiritual health, and we have to plug in and find brothers and sisters and welcome them into our life so that we can live the way Christ has called us to live. There is an immense value within the local church. Just as Adam and Eve were not meant to be alone, neither are we as Christians called to live out our faith journey alone. I've been asked many times, or I've heard, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? No, you do not. However, you can't find in the Bible any Christians who did not go to church. They surrounded themselves by brothers and sisters in Christ because they knew that they needed to be spurred on. And that leads us to the big idea of this message. Christ saves us, but we're responsible for plugging into the body. Christ saves us for our sins, and he opens up the door for us to have a spiritual family. However, if we're going to gain the full value of that spiritual family, then we have to be intentional in cultivating godly relationships within our life. The question that all of us as believers need to answer is this, how do I foster and grow mature godly relationships in my life so that I can conform to the image of Christ? Well, the scriptures have a lot to say about that. We're going to turn to one specific passage today, Colossians chapter number three. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Colossians chapter number three, and we're going to start reading in verse number 12. And Paul gives us some instructions in the scriptures on how we can develop these godly relationships and how these relationships should look and how they should function. Colossians 3, starting verse number 12, it says then, 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule your heart, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiveness, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, within these verses, what we see is we see the, the power of relationship released within the local church inside the hearts of each of us as believers. And this morning, we're going to break down this verse, and we're going to look at some specific principles and teachings that Paul is giving to a local church on how to maximize the relationships that they have with their brothers and sisters. And Paul starts out this section by saying, put on then. Verses 12 through 17 can only be understood in the context of the previous verses in which we see the power of Christ working within individual hearts and individual lives. Our relationships with the people that you're sitting next to, our relationships within a local church are only going to be effective when they're rooted in the understanding of who we are in Christ. Our relationships with one another are rooted in the very first line. He says, put on then. There is a put on then clause that is dependent upon verses 1 through 11 on why we should treat each other the way we do. So let's read those verses very quickly, starting in verse 1 of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice and have put on the new self, which is to be renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, what do we read when we read these verses? We read the gospel message. Paul's saying, look, you believed in Christ. Now you need to put the old life to death, put away the immorality, put away the old thoughts and the desires. You need to change your mindset. You need to look to heaven. You need to have the mindset of Christ and not have a worldly mindset. And that's the big key to understanding the Christian life. It is a renewal of our mind. It is a rewiring of how we think. We don't think the way we used to. Now we have spiritual eyes, a spiritual filter in which we run our thoughts, our actions, and our emotions because we desire to honor Christ in our life. We have turned our mind to the things of heaven. 
And that is an interesting question that we should answer. What does it mean to have an earthly mind, and what does it mean to have a spiritual mind? It doesn't mean that you're a religious freak. It doesn't mean that you go around and all you do is talk about Jesus. Uh, Brother Loki and I were talking about that one time. He had, a, he had a family member who got saved, and he said, man, this guy was on fire for Jesus. He said every conversation was about Jesus. And he said that was awesome to see the change in his life, but he said sometimes I just wanted to go eat dinner, and we need to have a conversation about that, right? There's, you don't have to be that person where all you talk about is Jesus, but it is a different set of priorities. It's a different worldview. And that's the key. The worldview of the culture, the earthly mindset is a us first mindset. We want what we want now and we want it today and we don't want to wait till tomorrow. How many of you are that way sometimes? Right? I can be that way sometimes. The worldly mindset is that I'm going to leverage other people to get what I want. In fact, I was doing this, I, I like to read, and I was looking at some of the best-selling books of all time, and there was this interesting book that kind of caught my title. It was, uh, it was called The 48 Laws of Power, and I thought, well, that's an interesting title, so I bought it. It was a real thick book, about that big, and I read the first chapter, and I realized the entire book was 48 different ways to manipulate people into doing what you want. And it was super scary because it had five stars. I mean, it had 22, 30,000. I don't remember. It was a lot of thousands of five-star reviews. And I thought, this is scary because what this is teaching people to do is manipulate other people. I did not read the book, if you're curious. Okay? So I did not. Now, Charity, on the other hand, she might have read. I don't know. I've been doing a lot. I've been doing a lot of dishes lately. I think I'm getting, I'm getting played over here. I'm just kidding. I'm probably going to pay for that later, if you cares. But that's the earthly mindset. Sean's up here like, this guy's an idiot, man. He needs to stop talking. <laughs> that's the earthly mindset. How can I get people to do what I want? And that's not a good mindset to have. A me-first mindset creates very selfish people. That's what Paul just told us in this passage. In fact, I was reading the other day uh, on the internet some jokes about first world problems. And these, they had taken tweets and social media posts of people who were complaining about things that we just shouldn't be complaining about. If you're not familiar with the term, a first world problem is a lot of things that we as spoiled Americans complain about. Like I went through the drive-thru and they put ketchup on my hamburger when I asked for, you know, mustard. And there's kids that are starving to death. You know, I mean, we are complaining about things that don't matter. Uh, and I found some of these tweets online and they were, they were sad, but they're also kind of funny. So I thought I'd read them to you. These are earthly mindsets. This one guy posted, I just had a cup of tea with soy milk. It was the worst decision I've ever made in my life. Man, if that's the worst decision you've ever made in your life, you're doing really well. I had to turn down the brightness on my iPad because it hurt my eyes. Just got a splinter in my finger from an avocado stone. Guacamole injury. I mean, are these people being for real? Is this the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Had too much truffle oil. Didn't know that was a laxative. I don't know what that means. <laughs> this last one's really sad. Really sick and tired of this place using too much orange zest in my brunch mimosa. I don't even know what a mimosa is. But here's the point. When you have a worldly mindset, every little thing irritates you. But the biggest problem is when you have a worldly mindset... You have a real hard time fostering healthy relationships. 
And Christ calls us to be different. The heavenly mindset says, how can I honor Christ? And when I decide that I want to honor him in everything, I then understand the golden rule is to do to others how I'd want them to treat me. So because Jesus has changed my heart and I know what he has done for me, now I want to treat other people differently. I want to honor my neighbor. It's amazing how much Jesus talked about honoring your neighbor. Why? Because it's the fruit, it's the evidence of a changed heart and a changed life. Because we have an earthly mind or a heavenly mindset, we put the earthly things to death. I no longer have wrath and anger and slander and obscene talk towards my brother or sister. That's not how believers communicate to one another. This is not how we interact with one another. This is the pattern of the world, and we are called to be different. We watch our temper, and we temper our words to one another. We don't lie to one another. We put on a new image, a new self, and that image is Jesus. Verse 11 is the key. He says there's not Greeks or Jews or slaves or free men anymore. We are all in the family of Christ. So when we say welcome to the family on Sunday morning, we are not trying to be cute. We're trying to be biblical because that's how Jesus has called us to be. As believers, our differences no longer define us. Our faith in Jesus unites us. That is what the gospel is calling us to do and how it's calling us to treat one another because Jesus has reconciled us to God. Now we reconcile ourselves to one another. He's basically saying the gospel has called us to be unified. He then goes into three different points that we need to grasp this morning, and I want to share them to you very quickly. First is this. We are a body who is unified in our identity. Verses 12 through 13 say this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The identity of Christ dictates our actions in Christ. It's not politically correct to talk about stereotypes anymore, but if we can be honest, there are some stereotypes exist, and there's a reason. I'm not sophisticated. Charity gets mad at me because if I find a lighter, I'm going to catch something on fire. I mean, I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, I figure I've paid for it. Sean's like, yeah, you're going to, you find a lighter, you're going to catch something on fire. It's just how it is. I was thinking about Lecky. I was talking to him this week. He's a Cajun. Cajuns know about crawfish and that man knows how to cook some crawfish. So is it a stereotype to say Cajuns like to eat crawfish? Probably, but it tastes good, right? <laughs> What's the point in all this? There should be a stereotype of Christians that they treat each other well. When people say Christians, there should be, yeah, those people that treat each other well. But that's not really what people think about Christians a lot, is it? We have an image problem that we created for ourselves. Paul said, as God's chosen, holy, beloved. You were chosen. You have a new identity. Our identity is rooted in God choosing us. God chose us before the foundations of the world. This election is not about entitlement. It's not about inclusiveness. Anyone and everyone is welcome to be a part of the chosen. The chosen is about a vocation who embraces Jesus as their Savior, and they participate in bringing his kingdom to earth. So when I put my faith in Jesus, I'm submitting to Christ. Because we're chosen, 
We are then called to be holy. We are called to be set apart. Our actions and our demeanor has to be different from the pattern of the world because how we treat one another is a testimony to our identity. Because we're chosen holy God's beloved children, he is proud to call us his children. He's proud to recognize us. And based on that identity, we should have some characteristics and some traits of our heavenly father in heaven. This privileged spiritual standing does have some ethical responsibilities towards one another. And Paul put those ethical responsibilities in this list below. He says, you got to have compassionate hearts. So when we see each other in need, we have to meet the need. You know, Charity was talking about this weekend, um, how the truck, and I don't know, that thing is dead as a doornail. And it is dead. I don't know. It's the wildest thing ever. But uh, I was talking to Jake on the phone, and he said, well, I'll come get it. That's a friend. It was 9 o'clock at night. We pulled into Barton Joyce's house because it happened right in front of them. And they said, man, just park it. And they offered to give us cars, feed us dinner, the whole nine yards. Why? Because they saw us in need. It's good to be surrounded by godly people who love and care for you. That is a compassionate heart, and that's the, that's the heart we need to have for one another. When you have kindness, our disposition towards one another needs to be kind. We're not mean and rough on one another. We speak to them the way Christ speaks to us. We have humility. We put others before ourselves. We think about their interests before ours. Meek. We're not demanding of our own ways. We bear with one another. We, we bring other people along with us in the journey. When our brothers and sisters sin against us or they fall down, we, we, don't, we don't shoot the wounded. We help pick them up and we help restore them gently to Christ. We have patience. We don't, we don't become frustrated with each other's shortcomings. Forgive as Christ has forgiven us. The reason why we're in the family is because God has forgiven us. And from time to time, we're going to wound one another. We're going to talk about this next week. We're going to, we are going to wound. We are going to offend one another. Why? Because we're human, but we're quick to forgive. In short, what Paul is calling us to do is bear fruit of the Spirit to one another. This disposition as brothers and sisters is a stark contrast to the disposition of this earth. Just look at a sporting event or a Black Friday sale. I love watching Black Friday because people get into fistfights over toasters. I mean, that's just crazy to me. But what's sad is there's been many churches that have gotten into fistfights over the color of the carpet. And we got to be careful. we got to be careful. Our identity is vital to understand because it will be the framework in which these rich relationships in life happen. In the beginning of this message, I talked about how there were so many people who were in the local church who helped shape me. And I'm sure you've had those same type of people in your life. If you start thinking about those people, they probably have the characteristics that Paul just mentioned. They were patient. They were meek. They were mature in how they carried themselves. Mean, selfish people never have strong relationships. Mean, selfish people never shape anybody's life. So if we want to be iron sharpening iron, then we have to live the fruit of the Spirit. So first, we are a body who is unified in our identity. Second, we are a body who is unified in our love. Verses 14 through 15 say this. Above all, put, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. If identity 
dictates our actions, then love is the motivation for these actions. It's vital to see that love brings everything together in perfect harmony. We cannot just walk in the actions of Christ with the wrong motives. The wrong motives can undermine the actions. For example, if I'm kind to somebody just because I want them to do something for me, that's manipulation. If I have false humility because I'm just looking for sympathy, that is also manipulation. Those are the wrong motives. So the unifying aspect of the actions, the thing that binds everything together, as Paul said, is the motivation of love. It brings all this stuff together in perfect harmony. And that brings us to a question. Love for whom? Is it love for our fellow neighbor? Yes, in part. But most importantly, it's our love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus is the motivation for me to walk in a fruit of the Spirit towards others. Love inside of me that I've experienced from Christ is my ambition. It's my unction to treat my brothers and sisters well. Here's something that you're probably not going to hear preached in church a lot, but we all know it to be true. You ready? You won't like everyone that you go to church with. I'm trying to be real serious for a second because it is kind of funny. Like we go, I don't like my neighbor over here. (laughs) We got to realize something. This is very important. You won't like everybody you go to church with. There will be some people that get on your nerves. There will be some people who chronically offend you. There will be some people that you have nothing in common with. There'll be some people who take more than they contribute. Now, why is it important to point this out? Because even in those times, we still get to display kindness. We still show compassion. We still show meekness and patience towards them. Why? Because I love Jesus. There's some people that require a little extra grace. There's some people that it's easy. It doesn't matter. Because of my love for Jesus, I know this is my brother and sister, and they might have a little farther to go in the sanctification process than others, but I'm still going to love them. Why? Because God has asked me to, and I love him. And this is where a lot of problems originate in church, because we get sideways with somebody in the church. It's not a big deal. It's not like there's anything I need to go ask for forgiveness for. They need to ask for forgiveness for me. We just get on each other's nerves. And we allow those annoyances to cause division when what Jesus is calling us to do through this passage is to be motivated by our love for him to overlook those indifferences. Our love for Christ motivates our actions because we know there is value in harmony within the church. We know that there's more value in harmony than there is in being right. We know that there's more value in harmony than there is being comfortable. So we walk in love towards one another and we will be in harmony. We put on love towards one another because we want to have peace so that Christ can rule our hearts. And if we have that kind of action, then we'll overlook the grievances. We'll overlook the annoyances. And peace will rule our hearts. 
Now, peace is really important because peace is a judge. It's an arbitrator. It's an umpire in every single relationship that you have. When we talk about living in harmony with one another, we're really talking about having this peace. Because if I have peace with somebody else, it, 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 keeps us in, it keeps us in check with one another. Peace in a relationship is an umpire. It, it tells us when things are unfair. If I, start to, if I start to be mean towards my brother or sister, I have the wrong action. Peace will call me back into check. Peace is an arbitrator. So whenever there's problems and I, I strive for peace, it, it's, the, it's the groundwork. It's what we're aiming for with one another. Peace is the judge. Did my, did my actions bring my brother or sister peace? If they didn't, then I need to change my actions. When there's no peace between brothers and sisters, there's no rich, rewarding relationship. Therefore, I strive to let peace reign. So we are a body who's unified in our identity. We're a body who's unified in our love. And third and finally, if charity wants to come back, we are a body unified in our pursuit. Verses 16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Most relationships are based upon a common interest. Really, almost all relationships in our life are probably compartmentalized into different interests. You know, you, you have friends that you like to go out and eat dinner with. Yeah, I have friends that I like to talk theology with. I got friends in the ministry. I mean, I, I like a lot of things, so I can find just about anything to be friendly about. And you're probably the same way. You have these common interests that you can centralize in a relationship. And what those centralizations do is they give purpose to that relationship and goals for that relationship. So if you have a buddy that you like to go hunting with, our goal and our purpose is we're going to go hunting. We're going to try to kill something. It's, it's, it's common ground. Now, for believers, the common interest or the common ground is growing in the image of Christ and advancing the mission of Christ. Notice that the word of, of Christ is to dwell in us richly in these verses. Notice that we are to admonish or build up one another in all wisdom. We're to build up one another even in how we worship. The local body of believers is not a social club for us to associate with like-minded people. The local church is, primarily a, uh, is not primarily a in an organization to have fun events. Local church is not even primarily, this might surprise you, a charity service where ultimately our mission is to become like Jesus and to invite other people into that discipleship process. Now, none of these things are bad. In fact, they're highly commended in Scripture. We see the first believers gathering daily to enjoy meals together. We see the first church feeding the poor, the widows, and the, the homeless. However, these actions were always secondary to the central purpose of gathering, which is to be more like Jesus. The church's first and foremost calling is to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're to know Him, and we're to worship Him. This is why when you look at our, our wall of all the things that we value out here in the foyer, you're not going to see we value fun events. Rather, we value the Word of God. We value worshiping the Lord. And we do value family. The test of a good church is not the size of its crowd. The, 
charisma of its preacher, the talent of the praise team, not the excellence of ministry. Rather, the test of a good church is, is the word of Christ being preached and is God being worshiped purely? Let us be a church where people hear the word of Christ preached clearly. Let them not get caught up in distractions where we're arguing and bickering with one another. Let us not get caught up in distractions where, you know, we're, we're constantly pursuing our own interests. Let us be a healthy body that's engaged and plugged in. We're unified in our identity, where we're motivated by our love to be more like him and to bring others along the process. If we do that, we will develop and foster healthy relationships that Christ has called us to maintain, and we will be more like him. If you would, please stand with me this morning. My prayer and my desire is truly that this church is like a family to you. We won't be perfect in that aim. We will struggle from time to time. We won't always get it right, but that's our goal. That's our goal. It's really interesting. I was thinking as I was talking just a second ago, I want to read to you a passage. You have in the book of Acts, the account of the first church. In Acts 1, Jesus is on earth. He's about to ascend. And he says, uh, in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound of a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were seated and divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. You flip over, Peter stands up and preaches and says, hey, look, this is the commission of the church. This is the foundation of the church. This is what God told us in Joel 2 would happen, that he would basically dwell among us and that we'd see visions and dreams and our sons and daughters would prophesy and we'd basically take his kingdom into the world. He gives a, he gives a sermon. At the end of it, it says in verse 37, and when they heard these, they were cut to the heart. This is the crowd that hears Peter. And said to Peter, the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 41 says, and so when they had received the word, they were baptized and there were added to that day 3,000 souls. So you went from 120 to 3,000 overnight. Overnight. And what did they do? Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to breaking of the bread and to prayer. So they devoted themselves to the spiritual things. And all came upon every soul, and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That was the spiritual side. Here's the practical side. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in each other's homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's very interesting to me that these people who received the power of the Holy Spirit, then they preach 3,000 are saved, they're in church together, and their natural response is to go and have a meal together. It's kind of interesting, kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? And yet you start looking in the Bible at all the times that God did amazing things over a meal. 
It's, it's quite staggering, actually. Some bad things happen over a meal. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And yet, when this thing is all wrapped up and we're all in heaven, what happens in heaven? Another meal. Yeah, the marriage supper of the Lamb and all, the, all these awesome things. What point am I trying to make? When we're unified in identity and love and pursuit, every person who comes here is going to be welcome into our family. There's going to be meals broken together that strengthen lives. There's going to be prayers offered for one another that strengthens lives. There's going to be this union that happens that strengthens lives. And here's the thing that we need to understand right now in this season in our church. We just came out of one of the most chaotic seasons that any of us have ever lived in. And thank God we're on the backside of that. This morning, this room is very full of people. And that's awesome. But as a pastor who's fairly new here myself, what I know is that a lot of you are new and you don't know anybody. And what's crazy is you're looking around this room full of people and you don't realize that maybe half of them are new and they don't know who you are either. It would be very important for us in this season to be intentional with the relationships that we're developing. It'd be very important for us in this season for us to be intentional to go out of our way to say, hey, I'm Austin, who are you? Now, some of us, we, we don't like doing that because we say, well, I know I talked to that person last week and I cannot remember their name for the life of me. I'm gonna do a study right now and I wanna prove something to you. How many of you struggle to remember names? Raise your hand, raise it high. I want you to look at something. Every one of us has our hand raised. Okay, you put your hand down. I have never met someone who says, yeah, I remember everybody's name, it's easy. I'm sure those people are out there, but they are the exception to the rule. And I said this when I first got here because I didn't know everybody's name. I'm gonna ask you your name multiple times. And I'm asking you not because I don't care about you enough to remember your name. My brain just doesn't work that good. I'm not, that, I'm not a smart man, Jenny, okay? <laughs> but I'm gonna ask you multiple times because I do care. And I'm going to embrace the embarrassment of having to ask two or three times until I learn it. And maybe if we all had that same attitude, we just gave each other grace, easy. Tell you, every time I pray and I say, Lord, how does this message need to end? Your, this today, your altar call is this. I'm gonna pray for you here in just a second. And I wanna challenge you in the next week, the next two weeks, I want you to find someone whom you've never ate and broke a meal with and go eat together. You can invite them over to your house or you can go to their house or you guys can go meet in neutral ground and go eat at Mexican restaurant because we all like, you know, who doesn't like chips and queso, right? say, well, is that really a spiritual thing to do? Well, yeah, it is. Because I could bring you down, we could all pray at this altar and say, Lord, help me just to be friendly and shine your light. And that would be a good prayer to pray. And then we could get out, we could go into our cars and we could go home and never actually live it out. And so I want to challenge you, find someone, break a meal, break bread, break a tortilla chip, whatever it takes. Let's be the friendliest church on the planet. Let's go out of our way and say, welcome to the family. If we do that, we will live what this passage told us to do. And we will set an example for the world that there's something different here.